So we start this Parsha in the book of Numbers, number uh, chapter 22, starting with verse 2. Now, first of all, we have to understand who is Balak. Balak is the king of Moab. But the interesting thing about the king of Moab is this Balak is that he was not a member of the house of Moab. He was not a Moabite. He was a Midianite. And that comes into the story later on about this about the Midianites and um, and their role with the people of Israel. Remember that Yitro was from Midian and Moshe's wife was also from Midian. So this is a very important piece of this picture. So here we're going to get started here. Balak, son of Zippor, saw that Israel had what they had done to the Amorim. Moab became very frightened of the people because it was numerous and Moab was disgusted in the face of the children of Israel. Moab said to the elders of Midian, Now the congregation will lick up our entire surroundings as an ox licks up the greenery of the field. Balak, son of Zippor, was king of Moab at the time. So Balak was not, like I said, he was not... Uh, Moabite he was from Midian but because they were in a time of crisis they did something really strange which ever so often in ancient kingdoms you'll find this that they would decide that they were going to have somebody from the outside be their king so let's take a moment and just talk about Balak for for a little bit Balak son of Zippor now this is a very important hint that the Torah is giving us and we find the answer in the Midrash about why he is called Zippor. It's not the name of his father. Actually, Zippor is the Hebrew word for bird. So why was Balak called son of bird? The reason was because he also, not just Bilam, but Balak as well, was a magician. And one of the things that Balak did that... Um, set him apart as being a master magician was he would make these birds for the sake of divination and the bird would be made out of just a second we made out of a combination of gold for its head silver for its beak copper for its wings and so on it was a combination of several metals and then what he would do would be take the tongue of a living bird and put it inside this model of a bird and he would do some incantations on it and he would set it in the window so that the moon could strike it and the sun could strike it and then he would take a golden needle and pierce the tongue of the bird and the bird could then talk to him and tell him things the bird could fly it would become animated and um, and it could talk and this was a a common tool of witchcraft in this time and Balak was a master of this tool and that's the reason that he was called son of Sipor so 
you would think then why if he was such a powerful magician that he could do this why would he need to summon Bilaam now Bilaam was um, master of other powers Balak could do certain things and Bilaam could do other things Balak was um, a master of powers for outer use like he could understand about times and Bilaam no I got that wrong Balak could understand about places that would be propitious to do to pronounce curses or blessings and Bilaam knew about the times that were propitious so Balak knew about this world you know of the places that were good and Bilaam knew about things that were going on in heaven he had uh, the inner ideas of um, the inside track of wisdom and remember I, I don't know if you realize this or not but Bilaam was a master he was a totally a master magician and he had been in the court of Pharaoh as one of his advisors so Bilaam was known in, the, in this world in the ancient world of that part of the, of the world as a master magician and Balak had his own talents but Bilaam had talents that complemented them and so together they were really quite a pair so Balak became the king over Moab and he realized that the Israelites were coming and the people of Moab were very frightened not that they were going to destroy them because they knew that they were not allowed to do that but that they were going to um, destroy their country that they were going to wreak havoc in their country that they were going to destroy their, their neighboring countries and it was going to just mess up their lives so this was the whole reason that Balak became their king so it was very important to him that he be able to destroy Israel because otherwise he doesn't have any his reason for sitting on the throne doesn't exist it's his only reason that they made him king so it's very very important to him so we pick up in verse 5 he sent messengers to Bilaam now I know that you're used to hearing the, it called Balaam but I just can't say it that way I'm sorry Bilaam son of Beor to Petor which is by the river of the land of the members of his people to summon him saying behold a people has come out of Egypt behold it has covered the surface of the earth and it sits opposite me so now please come and curse this people for me for it is too powerful for me perhaps I will be able to strike it and drive it away from the land for I know that whomever you bless is blessed and whomever you curse is accursed so here he is he's giving Bilaam all of this praise does he really believe it the sages say he really didn't believe it but this was politically correct language for him to use 
to summon Bilaam to come and do his bidding. The elders of Moab and the elders of Midian. So here we have a coalition of Midian and Moab together. They went together with charms in their hand. They came to Bilaam and spoke to him the words of Balak. He said to them, Spend the night here and I shall give you a response as Hashem shall speak to me. So the officers of Moab stayed with Bilaam. Now we have to ask ourselves about this phrase here. Stay with me, he says, and I will give you a response as Hashem shall speak to me. So Bilaam is giving credit to God. Now this is something that is really interesting about this character. And the sages say that Bilaam was as powerful on the side of darkness, on the side of Tumah, as Moshe Rabbeinu was in the side of holiness. He was as powerful a prophet of the nations as Moshe was of Israel. And he knew it. He was very, very conceited. He was very arrogant. He knew his position. But we're going to see later what Hashem really thought of him. He had power. He had um, an inside track, like we said, with the court of heaven. So he knew what was going on. But we have to realize that the court of heaven is a place where debates go on. I mean, the Satan is also in the court of heaven. And he brings this adversarial argument before the throne of Hashem. And so this was the attachment of Bilaam in the court of heaven. He was attached to the adversary. And the other nations also had their angels in the court of heaven who would give up argument against the people of Israel. The, the angel of Amalek, the angel of Edom, the angel of um, the Amorites, all of these nations had their angels in heaven. Because there is nothing that can happen in this world. No war can happen. No, no nation can fall. Nothing can happen in this world until it first happens in the court of heaven. And this was Bilaam's inside track. He had that connection. He had that insight. But, like I said, with the dark side, he was not a holy person, although he thought of himself as a is a very great and holy person. And you notice how a lot of times people who are, are can be very spiritual, but they're not spiritual in a good way, you know. They're very spiritual, and they're into all kinds of stuff. Yeah, they're spiritual. Jezebel, this the queen that we have as being the, the term that we use for overly painted loose women, was a very spiritual person. She was very, very religious. She had all of her prophets. She had all of her priests of her religion. She was very dedicated. So dedicated, she wanted to destroy the Torah. She wanted to persecute the prophets of God. But she was very, very religious. So, this is not necessarily a good thing. But it's something, you know, she was very dedicated. Bilaam was also very dedicated. A very religious, spiritual person. But what is the side that these people choose? That's the question. 
So these people came to Bilaam, and sometimes don't make, don't make it have uh, don't mistake this at all. Sometimes people can actually use prayer. And this is a lesson that we need to understand. They can be praying, and they're praying to God. But they're praying in such a way that is not according to his will. And we're going to see that example right here with Bilaam. How he's trying to manipulate God. So he has these people come. And and he tells them, stay here and I'll see what Hashem says to me. So the officers of Moab stayed with Bilaam. God came to Bilaam and he said, Who are these men with you? Now, God is saying this to Bilaam because he's wanting to hook him in and make him fall. And, you know, he knows his arrogance. He knows his doubt. And Bilaam is not really somebody who acknowledges the oneness of God. He is somebody who you can tell just by how he, even from just the written Torah, how he has these thoughts. And here, where Hashem says to him, Who are these men? Bilaam does not answer him, You, Hashem, know everything. He doesn't even, you know, it doesn't even occur to him that Hashem knows. He has this thought that maybe there's something Hashem doesn't know. So maybe I can fool him and have my own way. His mind is working like this, and Hashem knows his mind is working this way. Because he knows the heart of all of us. But Bilaam doesn't even understand this, because he doesn't really understand or grasp, you know, he doesn't connect with the oneness and the omnipotence of Hashem. So he says to Hashem in the 10th verse, Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab, sent to me. And you see how he's very arrogant. He says, sent to me. Behold, the people coming out of Egypt has covered the surface of the earth. Now go and curse it for me. Perhaps I will be able to make war against it and drive it away. And Balaam knows that these are the people who came out of Egypt through miracles of Hashem. But yet, he's thinking, well, maybe he could manipulate things around. And he does everything for hire, you see. He's not, he's mercenary. He doesn't really care about this group or that group or this person or that person. He is the guy who will curse this guy one day for a fee. And he will bless him the next day for a fee. He doesn't really get personally involved. So, the twelfth verse, God said to Bilaam, You shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for it is blessed. Bilaam arose in the morning and said to the officers of Balak, Go to your land, for Hashem refuses to let me go with you. Now, he gives this impression that it's because they are not high enough in rank. They're inferior to him. So Hashem says they're beneath him and he can't go with them. This is the impression he wants these people to have. And he doesn't tell them the whole truth. You notice he doesn't say the people of Israel are blessed. You're not allowed to curse them. He doesn't say that. He says, he won't let me go with you. The officers of Moab arose and came to Balak and said, Bilaam refused to go with us. 
Balak kept sending officers, more and more high-ranking than these. They came to Bilaam and said, So, said Balak, son of Zippor, do not refrain from going to me, for I shall honor you greatly, and everything that you say to me I shall do. So go now and curse this people for me. Bilaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, If Balak will give me his house full of silver and gold, I cannot transgress the word of Hashem, my God, to do anything small or great. And now you, too, stay here for the night, and I will know what more Hashem will speak to me. Because you see, Balak could only, I mean Bilaam, sorry, could only hear from Hashem at night, not in the daytime. He could only hear from him at night. And so he's telling them, spend the night and I'll see. He already knows what Hashem has said. But he's going to try to manipulate him, to try to turn things around, to get it the way he wants. And he, leaves, he gives this hint here in the 18th verse where he says, Even if he gave me a house full of silver and gold. So he's saying that's what he really wants. He wants to become rich. He wants to become honored. He wants everybody to think he's a, he is the greatest. And the truth of the matter is, the sages say, Bilaam was on the highest level of prophets of the nations. And so he's, it's not like he has no reason to feel this way. He really, there it is with reason. And God came to Bilaam in the night and said, if the men came to summon you, arise, go with them, but only the thing that I shall speak to you, that shall you do. So we have a question here. Why would Hashem all of a sudden say, okay, go with them, and then give a condition? But why would he say, okay, go with him? And that is a spiritual principle that if somebody is determined to do a certain thing, his will is set on that one certain thing, then Hashem lets him do it. He's not doing it with blessing. But a lot of times people think, well, if God didn't want me to do it, I wouldn't be doing it. He wouldn't have made the way for me to be able to do it. This just isn't true. We have to be very careful with that kind of thinking about being so basing our ideas about God's will on circumstances and situations because we can see here how Bilaam manipulated these circumstances how he just kept arguing kept coming before God and this is similar to what happened to Pharaoh you know Pharaoh would not have had to have all of the plagues and be destroyed in the sea of reeds except that his heart was set on that thing he was already so determined that this was the way it was going to be that Hashem just hardened his heart and made him steadfast on that path that he had already chosen and here is another case of this with Bilaam he is determined and you can see it really laid out as he argues with Hashem well why don't you just let me do this and he's thinking once I get to that point then I can push him a little further and he'll let me curse them. And he's thinking about the times. See, he's an expert about times in heaven. And he knows that there are certain times 
when the people of the nations worship idols that the divine anger is roused and he thinks if I can just jump in there at that certain time I can get permission from Hashem to curse these people so that's what he has planned it's hatching in his head and Bilaam arose in the morning and saddled his she-donkey and went with the officers of Moab God's wrath flared because he was going and an angel of Hashem stood on the road to impede him he was riding on his she-donkey and his two young men were with him the she-donkey saw the angel of of Hashem standing in the road with his sword drawn in his hand so the she-donkey turned away from the road and went in the field then Bilaam struck the she-donkey to turn it back into the road the angel of Hashem stood in the path of the vineyards a fence on this side and a fence on that side and the she-donkey saw the angel of Hashem and pressed against the wall and it pressed Bilaam's leg against the wall and he continued to strike it the angel of Hashem went further and stood in a narrow place where there was no room to turn right or left the she-donkey saw the angel of Hashem and crouched beneath Bilaam now first we're going to think about this before we go on and I know you know the story you know what's coming but first we're going to look at what we just read now three times the angel turned the donkey back and these three times correspond with the the patriarchs so first he's going along and he has an option you can curse the descendants of Abraham but you can only curse the descendants of Ishmael not Yitzhak okay and then he goes the other way okay you can curse the descendants of Yitzhak but only only Esav and not Yaakov but then he gets into this place where the angel is standing and he can't and the, and the donkey can't move he can't, she can't move either way and this is Yaakov and there's no way now he presses his leg and he hurts the donkey hurts Bilaam's leg up against this stone and the sages say what are these stones and these stones are the stones that were put into this into this uh, pillar by Levan and Yaakov to say don't go further than this to do harm to me and so this brings us back to something else Bilaam is this this magician this tremendous magician very very powerful magician and he is physically now the sages have a, an argument about whether he is the son or the grandson of Levan and there is another opinion that he is actually Levon himself reincarnated and he has this deep deep anger and hatred at Yaakov and all of the, his children and so even if he weren't going to get a dime he still wants to curse them because he has such anger against them and it's deeply ingrained it comes from the same country he's deeply deeply ingrained in him and he's chosen the same path as Levon. Remember, Levon also had the teraphim that would speak to him. He was a black magician. He tried to overcome 
Yaakov with the black heart. And Bilam is doing the same thing. So three times the donkey, and this is very important, very significant, how the donkey is stopped three times. It has to turn aside. So Bilam had opportunities, three opportunities, and then the last one was there's nowhere to turn. So she saw the angel of Hashem and, and crouched beneath Bilam. Bilam's anger flared and he struck the she-donkey with the staff. Then, and you know what's coming, Hashem opened the mouth of the she-donkey and it said to Bilam, What have I done to you that you strike me these three times? And Bilam is so angry. He's not just angry at this donkey. He's angry because he wants to curse these people. He wants it so bad he can't stand it. And he's taking his anger out on this donkey. And he's so angry that it doesn't even occur to him that this donkey talked. And instead of being surprised, Bilaam talks to the donkey like it's the most normal thing. He said to the she-donkey, Because you mocked me. If there were a sword in my hand, I would have killed you now. And the she-donkey said to Bilaam, Am I not your she-donkey that you have ridden all your life until this day? Have I been accustomed to do such a thing to you? And he had to admit, no. Then Hashem uncovered Bilaam's eyes, and he saw the angel of Hashem standing on the road with a sword drawn in his hand. He bowed his head and prostrated himself on his face. Now, was he repenting? Was he really and truly doing tshuva? You might make an, a mistake and think from reading the written Torah that Bilaam was repentant. And then when you come to his end, you're thinking, wow, then he didn't deserve it. Oh yes, he did. So he gets down and he makes a show of repentance. And Bilaam said to the angel of Hashem, I have sinned for I did not know you were standing opposite me on the road. And now, if it, if it is evil in your eyes, I shall return. And the angel of Hashem said to Bilaam, Go with the men, but only the word that I shall speak to you, that shall you speak. So Bilaam went with the officers of Balak. So he got his way. He wanted to go with them. He wanted to go to Balak. He was determined. He was set in this path. And so finally... Hashem sends an angel and says, Go ahead. Balak heard that Bilaam had come, so he went out toward him to the city of Moab, which is on the border of Arnon, which is at the edge of the border. Balak said to Bilaam, Did I not urgently send to you to summon you? Why did you not go to me? Am I not capable of honoring you? Bilaam said to Balak, Behold, now I have come to you. Am I empowered to say anything? Whatever word God puts into my mouth, that shall I speak. Bilaam went with Balak, and they came to Kiriat Huzot. Balak slaughtered cattle and sheep and sent them, sent to Bilaam and to the officers who were with him. And it was in the morning. Balak took Bilaam and brought him to the heights of Baal, and from there they saw the edge of the people. So, Bilaam decides, 
Well, I'm going to, he's going to try to bribe Hashem with these offerings. He thinks if I bring these uh, lavish offerings, I can bribe Hashem. Balaam said to Balak, Build for me here seven altars and prepare for me here seven bulls and seven rams. Balak did as Balaam had spoken and Balak and Balaam brought up a bull and a ram on each altar. Balaam said to Balak, Stand by your burnt offering while I go. Perhaps Hashem will happen toward me and show me something that I can tell you. And he went alone. I remember... Bilaam was not used usually Bilaam did not receive prophecy during the daytime only at night but now in this special instance he's receiving prophecy in the daytime and there is a difference too between Moshe and Bilaam in that when Moshe would receive prophecy he could stand he could stand and not fall he could receive the um, complete fullness of, of Hashem's spirit and receive from Hashem and he would not fall to the ground but Bilaam of course had would fall down because he was not of the holiness of Moshe so it was an unusual thing here that Bilaam is now going to receive um, prophecy in the daytime God happened upon Bilaam and he said to him I have prepared the seven altars and brought up a bull and a ram on each altar Hashem put an utterance in Bilaam's mouth and said go back to Balak and thus shall you say so first Hashem is putting it into his heart he's giving him um, a knowledge of what he's going to say and he doesn't give him any choice when he returned to him and behold he was standing by his burnt offering and all the officers of Moab and he declared his parable and said from Aram Balak king of Moab led me from the mountains of the east come curse Yaakov for me come bring anger upon Israel so he begins his parable he begins what he's going to say and our sages say that we can read into Balak's I mean Bilaam's um, quote blessings the curses that he wanted to say but Hashem is not allowing him to say it so he continues how can I curse God has not cursed how can I anger? God is not angry. So he was looking for that time, that point in time in heaven when Hashem would be angry and he could sashay in there and he could utter his curses and it would take effect. But, as he's saying here, God is not angry. And the sages say that what happened was Hashem knew his heart. He knew his plan. And so he control his anger he did not give um, the opportunity to Bilaam this day from its origins I see it rock like 
and from hills do I see. Behold, it is a nation that will dwell in solitude and not be reckoned among the nations. We see it rock-like and from its hills. This is the patriarchs and the matriarchs. The foundations of the nation will dwell in solitude and not be reckoned among the nations. So this is one of the uh, hints that we have that Israel does not have an angel in the court of heaven in the same way as the nations have. That's one thing. But also that Israel is not supposed to mix with the other nations. Israel is supposed to dwell apart. And so many times in our day, you see people always talk about wanting to be, Israel wanting to be a nation like other nations. And this is something that Israel is not supposed to do. We're supposed to dwell apart. Who has counted the dust of Yaakov, or numbered a quarter of Israel? May my soul die the death of the upright, and may my end be like his. So he's really upset here because he doesn't want to be uttering blessings. He wants to utter curses. And so he says, I want to just die. But this phrase here, may I die, my soul die the death of the upright, is, is, another, is one of the places in the Torah. There are very, very few, but it's a place in the Torah, the written Torah, that we have a hint of Olam Haba. Because why would Bilaam be asking to be able to die the death of the righteous if there was no reward in it? So this is a place that you can go to and see in the actual written Torah a hint of life after death. But he is saying he wants to just die. Realizing that the, the righteous Jew has this good end but here he's saying too who has counted the dust of Yaakov or numbered the quarter of Israel he's wanting to curse them so that they won't be productive but yet he's having to say this blessing that they are very populous and this brings us to something else when we have our Pesach Seder we say we talk about um, Levon the Aramean and how he wanted to to destroy Israel before Israel ever even came into existence that he wanted to destroy the souls of Israel before they could even come into the world and this is, is another continuation of that desire from this very dark soul of Levon and Bilaam Balak said to Bilaam what have you done to me to curse my enemy have I brought you but behold you have even blessed he spoke up and said it is not so that is it not so that whatever Hashem puts in my mouth that I must take heed to speak and Balak said to him go now with me to a different place from which you will see see Balak is the expert on places in the world where curses will be effective or blessings but curses However, you will see its edge, but not see all of it. You will curse it for me there. He took him to the field of outlooks, to the top of the peak, and built seven, seven altars and brought up a bull and ram on each altar. He said to Balak, Stand here by your offering, and I will happen upon, and, it, and I will be happened upon here. 
So here he brings them to where he can see the edge of the people. He's actually seeing the tribe of Dan that is outside the camp. And so he thinks, aha, there are some sinners here. We can curse them because maybe it's not taking effect because the people are righteous and I'm trying to curse. So I will curse those people who are weaker. Hashem happened on Bilaam, put an utterance in his mouth and said, Go back to Balak, and so shall you say. He came to him, and behold, he was standing by his burnt offering, and the officers of Moab were with him. Balak said to him, What did Hashem speak? He declaimed his parable and said, Stand erect, O Balak, and hear. Give ear to me, O son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should be deceitful nor a son of man that he should relent. Would he say and not do or speak and not confirm? So here we are are having a hint of even though it's sounding like he's declaring a a tremendous great faith in Hashem there's this hint of doubt. He's saying well maybe he's hoping that that this isn't true. Even though he's saying it as though it's true he's hoping it's not. Behold the blessed have I received. He is blessed and I shall not contradict it. He perceived no iniquity in Jacob and Yaakov and saw no perversity in Israel. Hashem is God. His God is with him and the friendship of the king is in him. It is God who brought him out of Egypt according to the power of his loftiness. For there is no divination in Yaakov and no sorcery in Israel. Even now it is said to Yaakov and Israel what God has wrought. There is no divination. There is no witchcraft. That's the simplest way of seeing this. But also there is no need of it because Hashem himself speaks through his prophets. Unlike in the nations where Balak and Bilaam are these master magicians and it's needed in the nations or they feel it's needed because they're worshipping idols and so on. And so they go to this dark side. Behold, the people will arise like a lion cub and raise itself like a lion. It will not lie down until it consumes prey and drinks the blood of the slain. So here he's talking about um, the wars that Israel is going to fight. And Balak said to Bilaam, Neither shall you curse them at all, nor shall you bless them at all. So he's just had it. Balak says, just don't say anything. Because every time you open your mouth, it's coming out a blessing. Even though he's wanting to curse, he's wanting to say an opposite thing of what's actually being forced out of his mouth. It's coming out as blessing. Bilam answered and said to Balak, Have I not spoken to you saying, Whatever Hashem shall speak, that shall I do? So he's sounding like a really good guy here, but... It's not what it seems to be on the surface. Balak said to Bilaam, Go now, I shall take you to a different place. Perhaps it will be proper in God's eyes that you shall curse them for me from there. Balak took Bilaam to the summit of the height that overlooks the face of the wasteland. Bilaam said to Balak, Build for me here seven altars and prepare for me seven bulls and seven rams. Balak did as Bilaam said and he brought up a bull and a ram on each altar. Bilaam saw that it was good in Hashem's eyes to bless Israel. So he did not go 
as every other time. See, he didn't want to do it. And here even here you see it in the written Torah that he doesn't really want to do this. But he set his face toward the wilderness. Bilaam raised his eyes and saw Israel dwelling according to its tribes, and the Spirit of God was upon him. He declaimed his parable and said, So even though he doesn't want to, he's turning away, he doesn't want to do it. He's not given a choice. The words of Bilaam, son of Beor, the words of the man with open eye, with the open eye. And this is another hint of what's coming. You notice he's saying one eye. And Bilaam is a master of the evil eye. The words of the one who hears the sayings of God and sees the vision of Shaddai, while fallen and with uncovered eyes. So he, he falls down when he has prophecy come to him he cannot stand erect like Moshe can but then he gives this blessing and this is the blessing that we say as we open services on Shabbat as we open services each each um, morning for Shachrit how goodly are your tents O Yaakov your dwelling places O Israel stretching out like brooks like gardens by a river like aloes planted by Hashem like cedars by water Water shall flow from his wells, and his seed shall be by abundant water. His king shall be exalted over Agag, and his kingdom shall be upraised. His king shall be over Agag. Here is he's prophesying about not only Saul, King Saul, who comes to war with Agag, but also about Mordecai and Esther. He's seeing into the future. It is God who brought him out of Egypt according to the power of his loftiness. He will consume the nations that oppress him and crush their bones, and his arrows shall pierce them. He crouched and lay down like a lion and like a lion cub who can stand up. Those who bless you are blessed, and those who curse you are accursed. Balak's anger flared against Bilaam, and he clapped his hands. Balak said to Bilaam, to curse my enemies did I summon you and behold you will continually bless them these three times and you notice these three times just like the three times that he was met by that angel and he went into the field and he was turned aside and he went over and crushed his foot and then he went into a place where she could not move three times now flee to your place I said I would honor you but behold Hashem has withheld you from honor Bilaam said to Balak, Did I not speak to your emissaries whom you sent to me, saying, If Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I cannot transgress the word of Hashem to do good or bad on my own. Whatever Hashem speaks, shall I speak. And now, behold, I go to my people. Come, I shall advise you what this people will do to your people in the end of days. So he's giving him a little bit of extra and he's going to give him an end time prophecy here. He declaimed this parable and said, Now of course, um, it's not going to happen right away. This is end time prophecy. The words of Bilaam, son of Beor, the words of man with open eye. And see, he had had one eye put out. And so he only has one eye. The words of one who hears the sayings of God and knows the knowledge of the Supreme One 
who sees the vision of Shaddai while fallen and with uncovered eyes. I shall see him, but not now. I shall look at him, but it is not near. A star has issued from Yaakov, and a scepter bearer has risen from Israel, and he shall pierce the nobles of Moab and undermine the children of Seth. Now this star is issued from Yaakov. We're thinking of what he's referring to is Mashiach. We're also he's also referring to um, King David. But you can see here there is an idea here that of two messiahs. A star is issued from Yaakov, and a scepter bearer has risen from Israel. Two messiahs that we talk about as being. Bin David and Bin Yosef from the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom of Israel <clears throat> and so he is seeing these in two different types of Mashiach two different um, ways that they come the first is of course physical um, in the world political and so on and then the second is a spiritual to bring the kingdom of heaven to bring the physical kingdom of Israel back together and then to bring the kingdom of heaven these two different missions of Mashiach it's first for Israel and then for the whole world a dome shall be a conquest and Seir shall be the conquest of his enemy and Israel will attain success one from Yaakov shall rule and destroy the remnant of the city. He saw Amalek and declaimed his parable and said, Amalek is the first among the nations, but its end will be eternal destruction. What was the first nation that attacked the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt? Can anybody remember? Right, Amalek. And so the first he is prophesying against Amalek. Amalek is going to be destroyed, and this is in the end times. He saw the Kenite and proclaimed this parable and said, Strong is your dwelling and set in a rock is your nest. For if the Kenite should be laid waste, till where can Assyria take you captive? And so this is the, the um, when the northern kingdom is taken into captivity by the Assyrians, the Kenites lived in the north. They they lived in the north. This was like the story of Yael during the time of the wars of Deborah and Barak. Yael's family lived in the north. And so the Kenites were also taken to, taken captive by the Assyrians with the northern kingdom. For if the king... Okay. He declaimed his parable and said, Oh, who will survive he when he imposes these? Big ships from the coast of Kittim will afflict Assyria and afflict the other bank, but it too will be forever destroyed. And Kittim is what? What do you? Does anybody know what Kittim is? Well, this is Rome. He's prophesying about Rome coming and and afflicting Assyria and other nations the Roman Empire becomes 
includes the last empire. When Balak arose and went and turned to his place, I mean Bilaam, sorry, arose and went and turned to his place, and Balak also went on his way. But that wasn't the end of the story. Kittim is also uh, is just another name for it. A dome went from um, Eastern A Dome where they were to Italy, but it was Italy was Kittim in the beginning. I mean that was its ancient name. A dome moved there and became the rulers of Kittim because actually a dome was located east of Israel where Jordan is I mean south part of Jordan okay now we're on verse um, chapter 25 and this is where the story really gets um, I mean it's not very long in the in the Torah but there's a lot about this story now Bilaam had failed to be able to curse the people of Israel. And so he hatched another plan to give to Balak. Another idea of how to ensnare Israel to fall. And then they would bring curse upon themselves. Israel settled in the Shittim and the people began to commit harlotry with the daughters of Moab. Now it's very interesting they came to a place called Shittim. And the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark, the Aron of, of the Mishkan, was, named, was made with Shittim wood. Wood called Shittim. And the reason, now every item of the tabernacle, of the Mishkan, was made with um, purpose behind it. There was a reason for every single decision of how it was made. The materials it was made from, its shape, every single thing had a reason. And here we're, here is the reason that the wood that was chosen for the Aron, the fourth ark, was Shittim. So that it's already the mercy seat. It's what the mercy seat is made from. So that the people can be forgiven when they come to the place called Shittim for what is going to happen here they invited the people to the feast of their gods the people ate and prostrated themselves to their gods Israel became attached to Baal Peor and the wrath of Hashem flared up against Israel Hashem said to Moshe take all the leaders of the people and hang them before Hashem against the sun and the flaring wrath of Hashem will withdraw from Israel. Moshe said to the judges of Israel, Let each man kill his men who were attached to Baal Peor. Behold, a man of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman near to his brothers in the sight of Moshe, and in the sight of the entire assembly of the children of Israel, and they were weeping at the entrance of the tent of the meeting. Pinchas, son of Eleazar, son of Aharon the Kohen, saw, and he stood up from amid the assembly and took a spear in his hand. He followed the Israelite man into the tent and pierced them both, the Israelite man and the woman, into her stomach. And the plague was halted from upon the children of Israel. Those who died in the plague 
for 24000 Now that's not very long to tell a very, very long story. When, Bala, when Billam realized that it wasn't going to work, he wasn't going to be able to curse Israel, he came up with this other plan. And the other plan was to draw Israel into um, idolatry and immorality. And Billam was a master of immorality. He had introduced gambling and, and prostitution into the country. He was a very low type of guy. And so his mind worked like that. And he knew that this would bring the wrath of Hashem on the people of Israel. And it couldn't be turned back. He knew it. So he gives this idea to Balak. And it's amazing to me that Balak didn't think of it himself. So we see that Balak, as bad as he was, was not on the level of Bilaam. Bilaam was really, really a crafty person and on a low level. So they decide to carry out Bilaam's plan. And how are they going to do it? So it looks like it's going to be very, very um, innocent. They set up booths and they're going to have a fair. And outside each of the booths is a, an old-looking old woman and she has um, different kinds of wares that she's selling. But inside is a, a very attractive young woman and she has the same wares for a cheaper price. So the idea is that the people will come up, that the men will come up and they will be looking at these uh, different kinds of wares and the old lady would say, Oh, well, I have some cheaper ones inside. You might want to go in there and look. So then he, the man would go inside, and the girl would say to him, Oh, we're, we're all descended from um, Abraham, and we like you very much. Why is it that you don't want to marry into our people? And this was the way of seduction, of trying to draw them in. And so there were many who did fall for it and they got them to but first before they would do anything no no Peor. no it's a uh, it's different it's not it's not paro it it was a an idol that was that the um the worship of it was to bring human beings to their basest character. It was It was glorifying the animalistic, the physical animalistic side of people. So this was what they were drawing the people into. Um, the idolatry they were drawing the people into. So, after all of this had happened, there was a, a girl, her name was Zimri, and she was the daughter of Fala. She was the princess. She was the Midianite princess. 
And she came into the camp, and her and what she was wanting to do, what she was supposed to do, her father had sent her to do, was to seduce Moshe himself. But before she even got there, um, she met the prince of the tribe of Shimon. His name was Zimri. Now, you notice that it doesn't say his name in the Torah. It will say his name later, but it doesn't say his name in the Torah here in this part. It says it in the next Parsha. As we go down, it says it, but when we first read about it, it doesn't say this, his name at first. He was the prince of the tribe of Shimon. He was also named Shlumiel ben Suri Shaddai, but he was known as Zimri here. And the people, what had happened was, first came the plague because of the worshipping of Baal Peor. And so his kinsmen came to him, and they were very upset because many of them had been sentenced to death. So they came to him and they were very upset over it. And he decided that he was going to challenge Moshe. And he was going to challenge him in a very drastic way. Very brazenly challenge him in public. So he propositioned King Balak's daughter, Kozbi. He was very willing. He wasn't she did not have to seduce him he was very willing and so he came he brought her before Moshe and he said to Moshe and every time they would challenge Moshe you notice that the rebels would always not call him Moshe Rabbeinu they would call him Ben Amram so he challenged him said is this woman permitted to me or forbidden Moshe replied she is forbidden then Zimri said, Well, God said you are trustworthy. Since you have declared I am not allowed to live with this woman, you must admit that your own wife is like, likewise prohibited to you because she is the daughter of a Moabite, of, I mean, sorry, a Midianite priest. And Moshe was just silent. All of a sudden, he couldn't, it was like he couldn't even think what to say next. And so when the people saw that Moshe failed to, re- to reply to this, many of them broke out weeping. And the members of the Sanhedrin were discussing what had to be done. Because Zimri is making this challenge. And Zimri is sinning in making this challenge. He is up in Moshe's face with this challenge. So, for a minute he had forgotten he had forgotten the law about a person who cohabits with a Gentile woman is to be slain. Because he, he was committing Hilul Hashem. He was committing a um, blasphemy against Hashem. And it was very audacious. So then Pinchas 
Aaron's grandson saw this whole scene and he was just totally indignant. And he did remember the halakha about this. So he came to Moshe and he, and he asked him, isn't, this, isn't it a halakha that one who cohabits with a Gentile woman may be attacked by a zealot? And so Moshe replied to him, Let he who remembers the law be our agent to execute it. So Pincus decided that he was going to take action against um, against Zimri and Cosby. And he was wondering why it was that the, nobody from the other tribes came forward. And he thought maybe the members of the tribe of Ruvain are afraid because they would be reprimanded by being reminded of their forefathers' suspected immorality with Bilha. Maybe the members of Shimon are being quiet because it's their own prince, their own Nasi. But they're not remembering their forefathers' zealousness in punishing the city of Shem because of immorality. And so he decided it was up to him. It was up to him, a member of Levi. Because the members of Levi had, of course, come to the to slay 3,000 people who worshipped the golden calf. But he was concerned that if he tried to do something, that the people of the tribe of Shimon would kill him. So he was hesitant. He was hesitant about it. So he took a, a spear, the spear of Moshe, and he went, he hid the, the tip of it under his cloak, and he walked with it like it was a walking stick. And he went into, he went up to the tent. And he went inside, he got past the guard, and he went inside, and he killed Zimri and Cosby in such a way that, and then he picked them up so that there could be no doubt about their guilt. Now we've gone for an hour here. We're going to continue because the, um, there are a lot of questions about this. So when he killed them, he killed Cosby and Zimri, the plague stopped. The plague that had broken out in the, pe- in the people of Israel stopped. And then when people, when somebody would come toward him to try to attack him, the plague would break out on that person. So we see that, um, start here. Hashem spoke to Moshe saying, Pincus, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the Kohen, turned back my wrath from upon the children of Israel when he zealously avenged my vengeance among them. So I did not consume the children of Israel in my vengeance. Therefore say, Behold, I give him my covenant of peace. It shall be for him and for his offspring after him a covenant of eternal priesthood because he took vengeance for his God and atoned for the children of Israel. So he prayed for the people and this was another way that he brought peace. He turned back the anger of Hashem by taking vengeance and stopping the sinning and he stopped the plague 
So even though what he did, the method that he used was violent, and we think, how in the world could we could a man who commits this act of violence, it's a terrible act of violence, and I don't mean that it's in a terrible as being bad, but they mean it's extreme violence, and yet for it he gets a covenant of peace from Hashem. So what do you think of that? You would think it would be a contradiction in terms, but yet, Shalom has a broken vav because of the violences. The violence. Well, the thing is, is That it's only through the Torah that we have true peace. It's only through the keeping of the Torah that we have peace. And when we just tolerate sin in our midst in order to keep the peace, you're right. Torah can't be understood in the Peshat without supplementary documentation. You're right. And that's why I'm teaching with Midrash. But what I was saying was that if we do not keep the Torah and, and we just tolerate the sin in our midst, this is an example. It brings a plague. It brings a curse upon the people. In order for our people to have true peace, and the people of the nations are going to come to this too, in order for the world to have true peace, we have to have a clear understanding and, an, and a willingness to live the Torah. The Torah that is given to us this is the only way that we can, as, an, as a nation of Israel, and as people of the entire world, it will go from just the nation of Israel to being the whole world, to have real peace. And this is the lesson of Pinchas, that he was zealous for the law of Hashem, that he was zealous to eradicate immorality, and, and um, idolatry from the camp. He didn't really act on the idolatry, but you notice that Zimri, I mean, um, yeah, Zimri was doing what he did, not out of just pure lust, but he was doing it as a demonstration of rebellion against Moshe. He was doing it as a rebellion against what he considered the intolerance of the Torah leaders of, of their people. And he was going to show, well, I'm going to do what I want to do. And I think it's terrible that my people have died because of just a little indiscretion. We should be more tolerant. Um, yeah, that, we can, that is part of it that Cosby was his soulmate and he did not wait and he did not do things properly and so on. But 
right now, um, I'm talk I'm kind of going with his more surface um, reasoning that he was rebelling against Moshe and he was trying to do something as a demonstration against the plague for the people and many of them from his tribe worshipping Baal Peor because these two things were connected it was the worship of Baal Peor was a celebration like I said of the animalistic side of human beings and so if you and immorality is the same thing it is the ant feeding the animal side or entertaining the animal side of our nature instead of putting the animal side of our nature under the submission of our of our spiritual side because we can be pulled apart by this and if we give in to the animal side of our nature it's as though our spiritual side almost ceases to exist it's, even, it's hard to even see it sometimes and, and you know what I'm talking about you know a lot of people a majority of people in the world are this way where it's hard to see them as a spiritual being and this is what we truly are we're spiritual beings in, physical be- in a physical body but too many times people put the emphasis on the physical body on the physical needs and, and that makes us no better than an animal that can talk. Now, interestingly, well, anyway, people can be very depraved if they give in to this animal side. They can be more depraved than animals. And this is what's very frightening about human beings, that we can think so much lower and do things that animals don't even have any desire for. It's completely human beings can do things and say oh it's only natural and it's totally not natural and that's why our physicality has to be in submission to our souls and to our spirits so that we don't allow ourselves to run wild like that okay starting back in the 14th verse the name of the slain Israelite man who was slain with the Midianite woman was Zimri son of Shalu, leader of the of a father's house of the um, Shimonites, Shimonim. And the name of the slain Midianite woman was Kozbi, daughter of Zur, who was the head of the people of a father's house in Midian. Well, he, she, he was actually Balak. Her father was Balak. She was the princess. She was a Midianite princess. So there was a challenge also concerning Zimri was challenging Moshe about his Midianite wife. And Pincus as well came from a Midianite mother. Eleazar was married to one of the family of Yitro. And so Pincus' mother was also a Midianite. But we have to remember it was not the same thing. These were not Midianite women who were worshippers of some idol. These Midianite women had become converts. They were worshipping the one God. There's a big difference between those two things. 
So Hashem told Moshe to publicize forever that because of what Pinchas did, that he was called Sadiq ben Sadiq. That his, his deed was inspired by the same motives that inspired the actions of his father Eleazar and his grandfather Aaron. And that's why he's called Pinchas ben Eleazar ben Aharon the Kohen. Now, before this had happened, the line of the Kohenim was to the sons of Aaron and then to the children who would be born after that. Pinchas had been born before the line of the Kohenim had been established. And so Pinchas was not by right a Kohen. It's a little bit hard to get your mind around, I know. But he was not by right a Kohen until after this happened. And then he was named by Hashem as the successor of his father to be the next Kohen Gadol. So, so Pincus then became the Kohen Gadol. And in the era in the era of the first temple, eighteen priests were descended from Pencas, and during the second temple, eighty priests. So Hashem promised that Pencas descendants would be Kohanim Gedolim forever. This was another part of the of the promise that was given to Pencas. And interestingly, when we think about it, we realize that because of what had happened here, because of what had happened in the tribe of Shimon, because of what had happened to Zimri, the tribe of Shimon never had greatness again. They never had um, true greatness again. Because they had sunk into this temptation. So let's start up again. And Hashem spoke to Moshe saying, Harass the Midianites and smite them, for they harassed you through their conspiracy, and they conspired against you in the matter of Peor, and in the matter of Kozbi, the daughter of the leader of the Midianim, their sister who was slain on the day of the plague in the matter of Peor. So now he's directing Moshe to go to war with Midian. And this is going to be a different type of war than what they normally fought. We're going to see that in just a second. First, though, they were going to have a census. I'm going to kind of skip over that because um, each time after there would be a plague there would be a census of the people and they would um, count them because it's like after there is uh, after there is some kind of a tragedy then the uh, to a herd of sheep then the shepherd counts the sheep right 
Okay, so first, before that happens, let me go back a minute. They were going to go to war with Midian. And this was because of what had happened, because they had um, drawn the people into sin to try to destroy them. And we're told that it is a worse crime to draw somebody into a search into sin than it is to commit murder. Because when you commit murder, you kill the person physically. But when you you bring them into something that is a destruction of their soul, you kill them spiritually. You deny them, the deprive them life in the world to come. And so this was a sin of Midian. But they had deprived the people. They were trying to draw the people into something that would be a real curse that would cause them to be denied life in the world to come. And it's interesting to note about this war that they were going to have with Midian that Hashem told Moshe that they were to go to war with them and they were to it was a different type of war like I was saying that they would give them no option to make peace they wouldn't give them any advance warning they would besiege their towns and destroy their fruit trees and they would also um, cut off any, any avenue of escape and so it was a different kind of war but I want to skip over to another part of this Parsha because I think that it's really interesting. Um, and that is the story of the daughters of Salafchad. The daughters of Salafchad, son of Hefer, son of Gilead, son of Machir, son of Manasseh, of the families of Manasseh, son of Yosef, drew near. And these are the names of the daughters. Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milcha, and Tirza. And they stood before Moshe, before Eleazar the Kohen, and before the leaders, and the entire assembly at the entrance of the tent of the meeting, saying, Our father died in the wilderness, but he was not among the assembly that was gathering against Hashem in the assembly of Korach, but he died of his own sin, and he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be omitted from among the family because he had no son? Give us a possession among our father's brothers. And Moshe brought their claim before Hashem. Now, this is a very interesting story. That's why I wanted to make sure that we did have time for this. There was a man named Salafchad and he had passed away in the wilderness leaving behind five daughters. And they were all righteous, intelligent, and learned. At the time of Aaron's death, after which the events related here took place, they were almost 40 years old and unmarried, since they could not find worthy spouses. When they heard Moshe explain that Eretz Israel would be distributed according to the number of males, they discussed the matter among themselves. Our father's name will be forgotten, they said to each other because no male heir will receive a portion in Eretz Israel associated with his name. Since we have no brothers, let us claim our father's portion in the land so that his name shall be perpetrated. Salafkad's daughters were descendants of Mahir, a family of the tribe of Manasseh, 
that it asked Moshe for permission to settle on the eastern side of the Jordan. Thus they knew that they could easily obtain territory on that side, since the land there was not distributed through divine lot, but through Moshe personally. However, they loved Eretz Israel. They were not content with a portion on the eastern side of the Jordan, but decided to ask for a share in Eretz Israel proper. They approached the judges appointed over every ten people and presented their request. Since it was unprecedented legal question, the judges could not decide it. They referred Salafchad's daughters to the judges appointed over fifty. We leave the decision to greater ones, these higher authorities also said. The daughters of Salafchad then approached the judges appointed over a hundred, but from there they were sent to the judges over a thousand. No judge felt competent to decide the matter until finally Salafchad's daughters were referred to Moshe himself. Salafchad's daughters waited with presenting their case until Moshe began to explain the laws of Yibum, which is a Leverite marriage of a brother to the widow of, who had no children. At that point they entered and addressed Moshe, Eleazar, who officiated after his father's death, and the elders. Although reluctant to appear in public, Salafchad's daughters overcame their natural modesty because their question was fundamental. They presented it in a learned fashion. The oldest daughter began, Our father passed away in the wilderness, and not in Egypt, since he belongs to the generation that left Egypt, he is entitled to a portion in Eretz Israel. The second daughter continued, He was not among the complainers or Korach's evil congregation, all of whom forfeited their shares in the land. The third one resumed, He did not introduce others to sin, which would cause him to lose his portion, but died because of his own sin. Now we are, we believe that this was the man who was picking up sticks on Shabbat, and he was stoned for that. The fourth daughter concluded, Why should our father's name be forgotten from the family because he left no son? Let us, his daughters, inherit all the portions that were due to him. Replied Moshe, You are not entitled to your father's inheritance. Why, they queried, Because females are not considered heirs according to the Torah law, said Moshe. The daughters of Salafchad then argued, If girls are not considered heirs, our mother ought to remarry one of our father's brothers according to the laws of Yibum. Perhaps she will then have a son who will inherit our father's portion. Once there are daughters, replied Moshe, Yibum does not apply. She may not marry one of your father's brothers. What reasoning is this, Moshe Rabbeinu, asked these learned women. If our status is equal to sons as far as Yibum is concerned, shouldn't the same rule apply regarding the inheritance of the land? Immediately, Moshe turned to ask Hashem to confirm the claim of Salafchad's daughters. Why did Moshe acknowledge, not acknowledge the truth of their argument himself? And there are various reasons, but one that I think is really an interesting reason is that like the other judges who had turned from one to the other always asking the higher 
judge for an opinion, he would turn to the greater judge, the judge of judges. And this is an interesting thought too because this was humbling for him. This is an example of how Moshe was the humblest of all. So Hashem replied to Moshe's query, The daughters of Salachad argue correctly. This was the law written down before me on high. They shall receive a double portion. Salachad's own portion and a double portion in his father Hafer's property as the firstborn. Salafkad inherits a double portion. And so they were given the double portion of their father. But there were conditions. One of the, one of the conditions was that they would only be able to marry men within their own tribe. Because if they were to marry outside of their tribe, then the land would go out of the tribe of Manasseh. And so in order to make sure that the land stayed within the tribe, because tribal inheritance goes down through the fathers, the land stayed within the tribe by only them only marrying within their tribe. So after that, after this had happened, they did find worthy spouses, and they did Mary. And there is the idea that one of the reasons that they weren't married up until now was simply for this very thing. So that this precedent could be set. So that this law could be um, written and clarified. Does anybody have a comment at this point? So Salafkad's daughters inherited land not on the east side of the Jordan, but they waited until the people came into the west side of the Jordan. And they took their inheritance on that side of the land just north of the tribal portion of Ephraim Hashem said to Moshe the daughters of Salafkad speak properly you shall give them a possession of inheritance among the brothers of their father and you shall cause the inheritance of their father to pass over to them and to the children of Israel you shall speak saying if a man will die and he has no son you shall cause his inheritance to pass over to his daughter. If he has no daughter, you shall cause his inheritance to his brothers. If he has no brothers, you shall give his inheritance to the brothers of his father. If there are no brothers of his father, you shall give his inheritance to a relative as closest to, his, to him of his family, and he shall inherit it. This shall be for the children of Israel as a decree of justice, as Hashem commanded Moshe. This is one example of how revolutionary the Torah was at the time it was given. Now we don't see it as being anything all that, um, all that extraordinary because women do inherit. But at the time, women did not inherit. 
This was revolutionary. It's like the laws on divorce that the Torah gives. The time there was no recourse for a woman. If she was in a very bad marriage, there was no recourse. If her husband didn't want her, he would just put her away. It was a very, very unhappy time for women in all the nations. Until the Torah. The people of the Torah were the first ones to have basically women's lib. I mean, the laws of the Torah of being considerate and kind to women were unheard of at this time. And we really can't improve on it too much, even though people have tried. The laws of the Torah are the kindness, they are mercy, they take into consideration the poor, the, the, the underdog, if you will. People sometimes get a misunderstanding about Torah. They think that it's harsh, that it is um, unkind. You know, you you know what I'm talking about. They they misunderstand the laws of the Torah, and it's just the opposite. And this story of the daughters of Salavchad is a real good example of how the Torah came and it changed the thinking and. In the nations all around them, this was just, it didn't happen. It was unheard of. It just didn't happen. The daughters wouldn't inherit land. And even among the people of Israel, Moshe was like for a minute stuck. Like, what in the world do I say? It was unheard of. So, if we can get the Torah, justice with mercy, absolutely. And when we get the Torah really ingrained into our souls, into our consciousness, we have this justice with mercy as well. It becomes part of our being. And we shouldn't think that it, of the Torah as being some kind of an antiquated set of rules. It's very timely. It's living. And there is really very little that we could do to improve on it. So the next thing that happens is that Hashem is going to show Moshe the land and he's going to have him choose his successor. Hashem said to Moshe, go up to this mountain of Abarim and see the land that I have given to the children of Israel. You shall see it and you shall be gathered into your people, you too, as Aaron your brother was gathered in. Because you rebelled against my word in the wilderness of Zin, in the assembly strife, to sanctify me in the, at the waters before their eyes, there were waters of strife at Kaddish in the wilderness of Zin. Now each time that we read about Moshe not going into the land of Israel, we read about this reason about the sin at the waters of Merivah. And the reason that we read about this sin every time, over and over and over, is so that we are not, has going to make the mistake of thinking that Moshe committed some kind of sin like the, like the generation that were caused to die in the wilderness. He was not a part of that. And so, he was not a part of 
the reasons that people died of the plagues and so on. He was this was the reason, and this is why it is said over and over. And remember how we talk about how things are put into the Torah in a specific order. So Moshe went up to the mountain. And this is right after he has dealt with this issue with the daughters of Salafchad. So he thinks, well, Hashem gave us a new law here, a new understanding about inheritance. So maybe he'll change his mind and let me go into the land. And Hashem told him, no, don't even, don't even think that. Then he thought, maybe I could appeal to him that one of my sons would succeed me. And Hashem told him, your sons are, are I understand you love them, and they are um, great Torah scholars. However, there's someone else. So, Hashem, so Moshe is um, going to appeal to Hashem about this. Moshe spoke to Hashem, saying, May Hashem, God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the assembly who shall go out before them and come in before them who shall take them out and bring them in and let the assembly of Hashem not be like sheep that have no shepherd Hashem said to Moshe take to yourself Yahushua son of Nun a man of whom there, in whom there is spirit and lean your hand upon him you shall stand him before Eleazar the Kohen and before the entire assembly and command him before their eyes you shall place some of your majesty upon him so that the entire assembly of the children of Israel will pay heed before Eleazar the Kohen shall he stand who shall inquire for him of the judgment of the Urim before Hashem at his word shall they go out and at his word shall they come in he and all the children of Israel with him the entire assembly Moshe did as Hashem commanded him. He took Yahushua and stood him before Eleazar the Kohen and before the entire assembly. He leaned his hands upon him and commanded him as Hashem had spoken through Moshe. So Hashem told him to just put one hand on him. But Moshe put both hands on him. Moshe was totally accepting of Hashem's will. Moshe would have preferred if his son could succeed him the same way as Aaron's sons are succeeding him. But that was not what Hashem had in mind. He had already chosen the leader. And the reason was because Yahushua was completely, totally attached and devoted to the Torah. Moshe's sons were Torah scholars and they were knowledgeable but, Hash- but Yahushua had a superior love for the Torah. But of course he didn't have the wisdom, the level of wisdom and spirit of Moshe Rabbeinu. And so because of that that's why Hashem told Moshe to put his hands upon him. Put his hand upon him. And Moshe accepting Hashem's will with his whole heart didn't just put one hand on him he put both hands on him and he blessed him and his prophetic spirit some of his prophetic spirit and wisdom went to Yehoshua so that he had a a bit of Moshe's 
greatness. And just as Moshe's face was illuminated by the rays of the Shekhinah, Yahushua's face began to shine. We have an idea in Judaism about a greater light and a lesser light, like the sun and the moon. And this is the first example of the sun and the moon. Earlier I talked about two messiahs, and this is the idea of greater and lesser. There are two messiahs. And Moshe and Yahushua are the first personification of this idea of the greater and lesser light. And this, their face is shining just demonstrates that more. Moshe was, of course, the sun, and Yahushua was the moon. The moon reflects the light of the sun. And we're told in this idea of the greater and lesser light that one would be inside Eretz Israel and one would be outside. So Moshe, the light, the greater light, didn't get to go inside Eretz Israel. But Yahushua, the lesser light, got to go in. In a way, we can understand that like this that the lesser light would need the extra Kedusha of Eretz Israel, and for a leader to be outside of Eretz Israel, he would himself have to hold more light in order to be able to maintain outside of Eretz Israel. And so that is where that idea of the greater and lesser light comes from, is first from Moshe and um, Yahushua bin Nun. So that's all I'm going to talk about Parsha Pinchas. The rest of the Parsha is about the holidays, and I'm not going to even begin with that. It goes into all the different holidays and how they're observed with the different sacrifices and when they're observed. But I'm not going to talk about that tonight. So does anybody have any comments or questions that you would like to ask now? that Glenn is typing. Is the lesser light with why Rabbi Schneerson did not go to Israel? Well, it's interesting that you should mention that because I did hear when I was in Israel that Rabbi Schneerson would have been considered the greater light. He did not go to Israel. And actually, during his lifetime, Rabbi, um, a Rabbi, a Sephardi Rabbi, called the, um, the Baba Sali, was considered the lesser light by some of the people who were in Israel. He was tremendous in his own right. And he was inside the land. And supposedly, um, Lubavitcher Rebbe and the Baba Sali never met each other in person. But according to this one Kabbalist that was talking to me about it one time, that they did meet each other 
spiritually. They commune spiritually. But I don't have a whole lot of details about that. There is one story, interestingly. There is a story in the stories of Rebbe Nachman in which he refers to the greater and lesser light. Let me see here. I can find it. Just give me a moment. I think it's the burger and popper. Where the son is wanting to go and see. Just a second. Well, I didn't find it. I'm sorry. I would have to look for that. Um, there is one of the stories. It seems like it is the story of the beggar and the pauper. But um, I would have to look at that. while since I've read it so it's a little bit um, hard for me to remember maybe next week I'll talk about it a little bit more about the greater and lesser light because I think that that is a very important um, concept that we have and it's not something that's really talked about all that much there was a time when I was hearing about it quite a bit, but I haven't heard about it for a while. So, um, there are a few of these stories of Remy Nachman that have such tremendous, su- such tremendous ideas. Okay. How would you relate Pinchas to the current events? Well, there's a lot of things going on in Israel right now, and I kind of thought maybe we would talk about that a little bit. I was seeing on the news today that the missiles were uh, slamming into the north part of Israel, into um, Haifa and Nahariya and even Sfat. And so... um, it's just, it's really hard to know what to say right now. Um, but Israel has definitely been, been harassed and plagued. 
we definitely need to we need to get ourselves straight spiritually so that we're not going we're not subject to so many of these physical afflictions and war is definitely one of the physical afflictions so that's about all I can say about it right now (laughs) it's really hard my daughter called me on Sunday she had just she came back on Friday she was back in the states and it was like the war just erupted right behind her leaving which is kind of interesting because it's been a pattern with her that she'll just leave a place or not show up in a certain place and then there will be some kind of a terrible terrorist attack it's happened a few times so this is uh, pretty pretty big though Were you writing something else? I thought I saw you typing. The thing about Pinchas, though, is it is it is kind of a dangerous thing for us to say because it kind of puts us into a position of putting ourselves in the place of a judge. And so we have to have a way of we have to be able to balance this on the one hand we're not supposed to tolerate immorality and we get in trouble if we do but on the other hand we have to be careful about being overly intolerant of people and having to have everybody be the same as we are and that seems to be the direction that people go a lot of times and so there has to be a balance where we are living lives that are pure and they're Torah and there are rules and there are things that are expected and there are things that are there are are, um, boundaries that are not going to be crossed but at the same time there's still room for people to be tolerant of each other you know you know what I'm saying it's really a difficult a difficult balance to strike so it's like this whole thing with um, homosexuality where people want tolerance of this it's clearly against the laws of God you know so you can't say it's okay but at the same time we can't go out and kill them either I mean you know we have to strike a balance and uh, and that's not easy in Israel we had a, a problem with um, with the status quo for Shabbat there was a, an area of Jerusalem where there was a push to change the status quo and the people were demonstrating against that changing the status quo 
and people would drive from Tel Aviv to come and drive down that street to harass the people who lived in that neighborhood. It was just totally crazy, and it just turned into a it turned into a war. But on both sides, I mean, it was sad because the non-religious side was just pushing at the religious side and then the religious side pushed back it really became a war so the Muslim fanatics tried to do Hashem's work for him yeah see this is why I was saying it's, it's a little bit difficult to go to this place because on the one hand that's an example of how people become so intolerant that they become impossible. It's impossible to live with them. It's impossible to come to anything because they want everybody to live by their rules. They want everybody to line up and live by their rules. And they don't tolerate anybody else. And I'll tell you, I mean, Muslims are not B'nai Noach. I mean, observant B'nai Noach, they're not. But they're not considered idolaters by Judaism. You know, they they do talk about one God. They're not considered, by definition, by the majority of the rabbis, they're not considered idolaters. So that's also an interesting thing, and we don't really have time to really go into that right now about the Muslims. And the thing that's really hard about the Muslims the fanatical Muslims is the hate that's generated that causes them to feel that they have license to um, perpetrate so much violence in the world. That's very frightening. So anyway, if there's no more comments, no more questions, I see you do have. Oh, thank you for being here. And thank you. I'm glad that I was glad to spend this evening with you. And I hope you have a very good week. And I'll be looking forward to seeing you here next week. And we'll be making an announcement, or I'll be making an announcement, about when we are going to be going over to the Noahide Nations room and that is going to happen so at at that point when we do go over to the Noahide Nations room it's going to be going to Monday nights rather than Tuesday nights in the Noahide Nations room so uh, we will be letting you know that though ahead of time so thank you for joining me and next week we're go- it's going to be a double Parsha We'll see how we're going to get through that. We'll do the best we can. We'll see how we're going to uh, learn that together. So have a good week. And um, since I'm not going to be talking to you probably before Shabbat, I'm going to wish you Shabbat Shalom right now. So good night.